0: And so excited to be with you guys, really, man, it is a privilege. We're going to pray in just a second, but I hope that you have been soaking up every ounce of this seemingly fall weather this weekend, right? You've been enjoying your weekend, because I'm sure just like me, you're perhaps worried that tomorrow it's going to be 95 again. And so because of that, I know it's a little chilly in here this morning, it's totally worth it. Just think back to the moment early August when you were just drenched in sweat and you'll be fine but really man we have hope that you guys have had a great weekend enjoying the weather perhaps some of you enjoying kanye west's new album jesus is king anybody heard that yet yeah Yeah. hey i don't know kanye but man i'm praying that change in his heart the same change that happens in all of ours but man there's some song on there like i'd highly commend to you guys if you don't know who kanye is come and talk to me after it doesn't really matter right but we would love to welcome you to pop culture in the 21st century Right, But all that to say, no man, I really am excited about this. Where we're going to be in the passage today, I had a friend who who came and he was like, man, if I was ever going to miss a Sunday, I wouldn't miss this Sunday. And he doesn't know, is this going to be a part one and a part two message, but next Sunday. And the reason for that is not because there's any great illustration or topic or teaching, it's because what God is going to say through his word. And man, I can't wait. So if y'all would join with me in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the privilege that we have to come to gather. For those of us who know you, to fall more in love with you, God, that is our goal. May we grow in a sincere love and affection for you. And then from that affection, may we follow. May we give you our whole life. Would you just draw us to you in a way that only you can? And then from that, may we devote our lives to you, just as we should. I thank you for the privilege of Sunday mornings. I thank you for the common grace of wonderful weather, good football, good music. Father, I'd ask that you do what only you can do, and it's change lives. So if you're here, guys, and you have a faith, if you would, please, just to yourself, take 10 seconds and pray that God would use this time to strengthen you, use this time to grow you. If you would... Please take another 10 seconds and pray for me. Pray that my heart would be yielded to Christ and I would be useful to the master. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for today. We give you all the glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. This past week, excuse me, I I was online. I was spending a little time doing some reading and I came across an article that was fascinating to me. I came across this article that said common misconceptions. The subtitle below it was things people think are true, but in fact are false. And like right there, common misconceptions, like I'm interested in that. I want to come and I want to click that. I checked it out. I ended up seeing things through this article that I have legitimately believed to be true my entire life. where what I want to share with you is I think you have the same problem that I've had. You've held things to be true that are, in fact, false. Let me give you the first example. Napoleon, y'all ever heard of Napoleon Complex, right? Napoleon, there's like Zacchaeus and Napoleon, both are like four foot six. That's the way people talk about it. If you don't know Zacchaeus, you didn't grow up in church, neither did I. Glad you're here, right? But Napoleon, super short, Napoleon Complex. Here's what I found out. Napoleon was 5'7". He was average height for a Frenchman during his century, It'd be like going to someone in America today that's, that's like 5'11", 5'10", somewhere in there, and saying, wow, you are so short. Not true of Napoleon. Like I've always thought Napoleon was this tiny, itty-bitty little guy. Second misconception, a second thing that I have always for some reason thought was true, but in fact, it's false. You guys ever heard that you can see the Great Wall of China from space, Right? Anybody else ever heard that? I've always thought that was fascinating. Like I can remember times where I can kind of tell like those space photos from a satellite. I'm overseeing that and I'm looking at Asia and I'm like, where is it? Here's what's true. The naked eye can't, but a satellite telescope can. Here's what's true. You can't see the Great Wall of China from space. A bunch of y'all are about to break out your phones and be like, oh really? Let me see Google images. Third one that I found. Anyone here, especially if you have kids, have the rule? Like you gotta wait 30 minutes after you eat before you can swim, because it's like all of a sudden, what, what people say, and I, can up, I can remember my mom telling me, right? You'll get cramps, right? And then you'll drown. That's like the stakes. You want some fried chicken, right? Then you gotta wait. If you don't wait, you'll die. That was like the stakes. Here's what's true. That's false. That's actually not true. Here is what can be true though. When you fill your stomach, it makes it harder to breathe. And holding your breath, when you make that more difficult underwater, it's a little more high stakes, but you won't get cramps. You can swim right after you eat. Another one. Y'all ever heard that if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, when you go to flush a toilet, the toilet water spins the other direction? What do y'all do in your free time? Do you not aimlessly look things up online? Come on, people. No. Here's what's... That's not true. I was in Peru, as some of y'all know, a couple weeks ago. I flushed the toilet and I remember thinking, huh, fascinating. The other one in here, I'll, I'll end with this one, right? Actually, I might have a couple more. I like doing this, right? <laughs> There's another one. There was this baby bird. My daughter, Lily, she's tiny. We went outside. There was this baby bird hanging out by itself, kind of on our grill. I could see off in these bushes was its nest. And I was looking at the bird and I knew, oh no, baby bird out of nest don't know how that happened we need to go put baby bird back in nest and lily wants to do it and lily my daughter she's not scared of anything man so she's reaching for the bird and i'm like no no no, lily you can't touch the baby bird and then she's asking me why and she doesn't understand this but i still explain it to her right well the mama bird will smell human scent on the baby bird will be terrified and then the mama bird will abandon the baby bird she's like abandon and i'm like don't you worry about it daddy will never abandon you right? But I'm setting this whole thing up. Guess what? Birds have a terrible sense of smell. You can touch the baby bird. I didn't know that. Another one, you know, bullfighting, you think bulls hate the color red? You ever thought that? Like they see red and they get mad. There's that language here, even seeing red. Bulls are colorblind. What they get angry at is the waving motion. That's what they get angry at in the way that it's been taken as they go to chase it. just the reason I'm sharing all these. These are things that like legitimately I thought was true. Another one on this website that was fascinating. <laughs> Another one, and I love this too, because even the way it's set it up, it's this like secular article. They've got all these references. When you disbelieve me, I'll email it to you. Don't worry about it, right? But they sent one, and, and at the end, it had like this spiritual, spiritual aspect to it. It says, Satan is the ruler of hell. They said, that is a misconception. And then what I love is they give a source. And it says, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Satan is the ruler of hell. They're absolutely right. It's this example of a misconception, much the same way Great Wall, much the same way Napoleon, much the same way. You guys ever hear that sharks don't get cancer? Right? Where cancer research, we focus on sharks. One gal's looking at me like, no, I've never heard that. Who do you talk to? What's strange is I've told multiple people this. Like, I've legitimately said, yo, no, yeah, cancer research. We're looking into sharks right now. That's the next frontier, man. They just don't get it, right? Here's what's true. They do get cancer. In particular, skin cancer. I didn't even know sharks had skin, right? These are all misconceptions that people, that myself, that maybe you, we hold as truth, Now here's what's great, man. When when you can come and you can find a misconception and it's funny and it's silly or you can touch the baby bird or you can swim, but here's what also happens. There's misconceptions that all people have that when we hold them as truth, they actually, in fact, have disastrous effects. The reason I start with that is because today, like in, in Philippians chapter three, where we're gonna be, the apostle Paul, he's gonna come and he's gonna say, there's a misconception, there is a lie, and if you hold it as truth, it has disastrous consequences. There's something false, and if you think it's true, it has disastrous effects. And and the conception that he's gonna put forward, it's something that a lot of people believe in today. And and it's this, and and stay with me while I explain this, it's this, the misconception people think is true is, Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Like I say that even in American culture, and people are like, What? Of course, I need to believe in myself. Here's what Paul's going to show you. Right? There's generally two ways when it comes to using language, in our culture especially, of believing yourself. There's kind of two categories that can break out in. There's the category, and I'm just going to call that the, the I can category. It's the mindset of, no, I could do it. It's the mindset of, I can get it done. It's the mindset of, I am the ultimate determiner. I need no help. God helps those who help themselves. Bootstraps on, I can. Then there's a second category when it comes to believing yourself. And this is the category where we might call self-confidence, self-worth, self-value, where we come and identify the intrinsic value that we bring to the world, and then from that value, we self-describe worth. Paul, he's going to focus more on the I can category today. The folks who come and they say, I can pull myself up. But you get this confusing mix of both when we start to think, believe in yourself because here's what Paul's gonna show you and he's gonna show me. You and I, and if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, like you do not need to believe in yourself. You need to believe in a God in heaven who's redeemed you from sin, ransomed you from the penalty of your death, and who loves you. You believe in him. You don't self-describe, I can, God helps those who helps himself. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what's true. He doesn't help those who help himself. It just helps. If you're here, though, and, and you don't believe in God, right, or you don't believe in Jesus and you just got dragged and you're, like, wrestling with faith, legitimately, like, I, I get it, and I'm so glad you're here. Here's what's true, too. Like, even when we come in so much of, like, right now, American uh, culture, this self-care mindset, it's this, man, no, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Self-describe self-worth. Here's what's true of you because it's true of me you know that you can't meet your own expectations. Like, do you ever think through that? Like, you want to believe in yourself, but then you realize, man, I am inconsistent in what I say and what I do and what I believe. I'm hypocritical. Here's why, even if you don't believe in God, I'm gonna say, don't believe in yourself. It's because you're not a good enough version of God. Here's why I think all this matters. Paul is going to show us, man, there's a lie that if you believe it is truth, it can have disastrous consequences. And the lie that he's going to show is don't believe in yourself, believe in God. Where are we going to see this? It's going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to really, the whole theme of this is verses 1 through 11, but today we're going to focus on verses 1 through 6 as we kind of build up Paul's case for why he's saying this. The first aspect that we're going to see is in order to really not believe in yourself, but believe in God. In order to not do that, you have to beware the lie. The second thing is you have to believe the truth. What Paul's doing as he's journeying through this book, he's just given us, last week if you are here, he gave us these amazing examples of faithfulness. Tremendous examples of faithfulness. He started in chapter two with Jesus and his humility. He ends it with himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus. These amazing examples of faithfulness. And where he switches in chapter three is this exhortation, this call to faithfulness. And he's going to use this language we're really going to key on. Put no confidence in the flesh. Say it differently. Don't depend. Don't believe. Don't Rely, don't self-assure on yourself. Believe in God. So what I want to do to really frame the whole context for us is I want to read 1 through 11. And then after that, verse 1, it's kind of the summary reminder that Paul says. I want to explain verse 1 real quick, and then we're going to jump into really where we're going to spend the majority of our time, verses 2 through 6. So that's where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible, turn with me, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 and then come and work our way back through. Paul starts here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put, you gotta remember this phrase, put no confidence in the flesh. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that come of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen, amen, and amen. But here's where we're gonna be. We're gonna look at two through six, but first I wanna frame up verse one. So jump back up to the top. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, is safe to you. The the reason I want to start with verse one real quick is a lot of times scholars come and they're thinking through, hey, why is verse one included? Because if you remember the context of last week where we were and we finished chapter two, Paul called us to not just live sacrificially, but if you're a follower of Jesus, he called us to the reality of you and I, we are the sacrifice. And then he switches and he comes and he says, finally, my brothers. And I love that too. He added the word finally, and he's still got two chapters to go. Goes to show like, A long-winded pastor-preacher has been happening for centuries, not just me. But he sets it up. Finally, my brothers, he's appealing to these people, rejoice in the Lord. He's tagging this summary theme that we've referenced repeatedly all throughout the book of Philippians. It's this call to joy. It's this call to no matter your situation, no matter your circumstance, rejoice, not in the circumstances, but in Christ. The easiest one, like contextually, last week he said, hey, you will suffer and you will be the sacrifice. Rejoice. Chapter one, the famous verse is where he says, hey, to live is to live for Christ. To die is gain. There's this theme in the Christian life that Paul's reminding them, and he's reminding us, man, we are called to be marked by joy and guys, if your joy, it's dependent on your job, your kids, your spouse, your success, your car, the neighborhood you live in, the job that you have, the house that you own, any of that, it's too cheap. It's way too cheap. But when we as believers fight for joy in him, that's what he's reminding us. And that's why he says there, hey, it's of no problem to me to remind you of this again. What Paul's saying to them is, hey, I know I'm being redundant, but I'm gonna tell you, what I've told you, and then I'm gonna tell you what I've told you, why. It's safe to you. Your Bible, if you're reading a different translation, it may say, it's a safeguard. It's good for your soul, and it's good for mine to be reminded. That's what verse one really sets up. And then you see he's gonna to switch to this new theme where, where he's using this summary language, hey, put no confidence in the flesh. And we'll see what that means by, as we read again. What we're gonna look at at the start is we're gonna check out verses two, And then I'm gonna skip verse three because we're gonna come back to that later. And then we're gonna look at four through six. Because the first thing that he's gonna say when we put no confidence in the flesh, to say it differently, don't believe in yourself. He's gonna tell us, beware the lie. So as we read through this, see with me if you can spot the lie. Starting in verse two, and then I'm gonna jump to four through six. Paul, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Skipping to verse four. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, Paul's going to list his resume here. What does he say? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. As I shared at the beginning, the first thing we gotta see when you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we fight to not believe in ourselves, the way we do that is we must beware the lie. The first thing that happens there, especially in verse two, is you see Paul, he he ruthlessly goes after something, right? And ruthlessly is the right word, and I'm gonna prove that as we go through the text. He ruthlessly goes after this, this commingling of how you have a relationship with God, how you spend eternity with God. He goes after what it takes to be saved, salvation itself. And at its core is when when people come and they mix, belief and behavior is a requirement to spend eternity with God in heaven. To say it differently, like faith and works. Because Paul right here, as he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's a group of people he's referencing there would have been these people called Judaizers. These would have been folks who in that century, right, they would have come, oftentimes Paul would have come, preached the gospel, the reality that you're saved by faith. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven if you do not believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of your sins. Like, like the part of you that you think is unforgivable, he wants to forgive it. Like the part of you that you think is beyond restoration, he wants to restore it. And these folks would come, and after he'd come, he'd preach or a church would start. They'd come and they'd take partial truths and from them teach lies. For example, with Judaizers, they'd come behind and they would say things like, no, 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 you have to believe in Jesus, but what you also have to do is convert to Judaism. You have to come and believe by faith. But then we're going to put some things on that that you have to do. If you're not a Jew, he's the Jewish Messiah. If you're not a Jew, you're not going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And what does he say here? Look out. Look out. Look out. Look out for the dogs. Dogs, it it was part of the Shema. It it was this Jewish prayer that they prayed against Gentiles. Gentiles were non-believing, non-Jews. And he's literally using the same word against Jews that they would use against Gentiles. And then what does he call them? People who would come and mix up the gospel, mix up the purity of, no, you're just saved by faith. That faith transforms, but you are saved by faith. What does he call people that that mix that up? Evil doers. He doesn't mix words. Evil doers. And then what does he says after that? Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What we gotta do here is we gotta zoom in on something. You saw it, if you remember from verse three, there was a specific thing that Judaizers said had to happen, right, if you wanted to have a relationship with God for an eternity. You had to believe in Jesus, you had to follow parts of the Old Testament law, but they really highlighted the act of circumcision. Circumcision, if you don't know your Bible very well, in the Old Testament, it was a sign of being a part of the family of God, It was a demonstration to show we are set apart. We are a different people physically. What it was meant to symbolically represent, though, is also there's an act of faith. It was a physical demonstration that was meant to point to, it was meant to show, meant to be related, a parent's prayerful hope that one day their young Israelite would come to trust in God the same way people have always had eternity with God by faith in his promises. And he's saying here, look out for those who would come and mutilate the flesh. He's, he's coming and saying, I came and I preached, you're just saved by faith. And then these Judaizers would come in and they'd say, no, 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 faith and. And they start tacking things onto it. One of the phrases of Bible that I really appreciate the most is how circumcision throughout the New Testament becomes an example of a work that you have to do. Something you have to do in order to go to heaven. Galatians chapter 5, it does a beautiful example of really going after this. And so, what I want to do is, I wish we had time to teach the whole thing. I just want to summarize what Paul says. Because, again, we're using circumcision as an example, but really tax it on there. Is there there any work, any effort, anything you can do? Galatians 5, I'm going to read verse 1, 6, and 12, because I'm trying to summarize the context quickly. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You have been freed. Do not return to slavery. What's with slavery? Earning it. Trying to earn your way to the master versus being treated as a son or daughter. Verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. There's no work you can do. But what counts? But only faith working through love I wish those who unsettle you, there were Judaizers there too, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Here's what these people are teaching. Believe in Christ and then come and be circumcised. And Paul literally says, I wish the people that were coming and attaching faith in works and then confusing all of you guys by asking you to come and take physical steps to change your physical body, I wish that they would stop talking about you changing your body, you cutting parts on you, and they would castrate themselves. Y'all get what he just said there? There's a bunch of language I could add, and I was literally warned in the run through not to use the language that I used in the run through. He's saying, hey bro, keep your hands off them, but if you want to cut somebody, cut yourself. That's what he's saying. Why? Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he sets up, hey, why should you not listen to them? Because here's what's true. If you know Paul's background in verses four through six, he gives this autobiographical breakdown of why you should trust him on this. He gives him this representation of, here's why you should listen to me. It's because these folks were holding up rules and Paul's saying, he's gonna tell us in just a second, I was a better rule keeper. I was a better rule teacher. I was a better rule preacher. They're calling you to this. I lived it. this. If you think they're good, I was great. And the whole time, he's building towards this chorus of every human effort trying to earn a relationship with God. It's worthless. It is meaningless. It is foolish. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. But let's see how Paul references his own resume. Read with me now four through six, and what are we doing? We are fighting to remember, beware the lie. Verse four, because let me give a little more context. Because trusting in a work in order to go to heaven, it's having self-confidence. That's why we're saying, don't believe in yourself, believe in God. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to him. It's having, putting confidence in the flesh. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he says here, right there in verse four, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You guys ever been warned, like when you go to, and if you're a used car salesman or saleswoman, no disrespect, you ever been warned when you go to like a used car sales lot, like, dude, they're going to do every trick in the book. I've had a terrible record of buying cars in the past two years. I fall for everything, right? But you go to these used car sale lots and you're immediately warned, like, hey man, be careful, It's like Paul's saying, hey, be warned. And the reason he's warning us is, I was a better salesman. I I was so much better at coming and manipulating the customer. Trust me, don't listen to them. And why can I tell you that? I once did it, and I was better at it. And then here's his broken list of a resume. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. This was the Jewish rite of circumcision. It's called a brisk. According to God's law, it happened on the eighth day. Here's why this really matters. Paul's showing them, hey, these Judaizers, many of them were Greeks who had converted to Judaism. Paul's saying, I didn't convert, I was born this. Paul's building his case for his pure blood, ethnic heritage. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel. Well, I love that, it shows. Paul's saying, hey, both my parents, Jews. I didn't start this, I've been this. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul's referencing, hey, do you know your Jewish heritage? Do you know your Jewish works? Do you know your efforts to appease God? Do you know your efforts to work your way back? I can trace my family line back to Benjamin. What he's saying is, hey, you guys heard of Father Abraham? I could walk my line, my lineage back to Abraham. And then he says here, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I didn't have to learn Hebrew. I was born Hebrew. I didn't have to learn the customs and the ethics. I was born into the customs and the ethics. You guys ever talk to someone who's a true local new Bromfelsian? yeah you're gonna get a little weird here right here's the deal i moved here two years ago i'm a local you say that to locals here and they're like no you're not you have to literally be born in the zip code and that's where they come and like oh yeah my grandfather he was a local grandmother local everyone just marries here locals we've been here right It's like what gets you into, there's gotta be a secret passage at Worst Fest if you're local. Like, I don't know if that's true, but y'all get what I'm saying? There's this sense of pedigree to it, which is ridiculous, but setting that aside, Paul's saying, hey, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. They're coming and adding parts. I was the whole. And then he sets up, as to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were like the Navy SEALs of Jews. The law, it was not just the Old Testament law. It was also rabbinical law, rabbis, teachers, that over time had created oral traditions. It's like they said, hey, I'm gonna apply God's law, but then we're gonna add more onto it. And Paul's saying, I did it all. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zeal, it's this beautiful thing. It's the connection of a love for God and a hatred of what offends him. Paul lived that out. In in the book of Acts, I'm gonna read a section from chapter 26, 9 through 11, where Paul references his past zeal. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. You think the Judaizers have zeal that earns God's favor? Let me show you how I had more. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Y'all seen Gladiator where people put their thumbs out? Paul's saying, Every Christian that came before to be put to death, every time I was thumbs down. Check the record. Every time I was thumbs down. You think they're zealous? I was zealous. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. I raged in fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities the foreign cities part, he's literally saying, people ran from me. Instead of letting them run, I ran them down. Paul's saying, you try hard, I tried harder. And his final one, as to righteousness, blameless. What, What Paul wouldn't have thought is blameless meant sinless. Pharisees didn't believe that. He couldn't have believed that. It doesn't mean sinless, but what it means is, you think your efforts were good? You think you tried hard? I not only tried harder, I did better. You think your righteous actions meant something? I had more. And he's using all of this to say, beware their lies? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ does not intermix anything of work and faith. It's just faith. The part that saves you, that transforms you, that sets you free is not you being a better version of yourself. It's believing. And then, hey, if you're here too and you like grew up in church and you're like, oh, oh yeah, reminder of the gospel, got it. Check, heard that. If that's the heart posture, here's what's also true. And this is why I wish we could teach the whole thing this week. The reality of that, it being your foundation, the understanding you're saved by grace, unmerited favor, you are a broken sinner deserving of eternity apart from God. You and I, our sin, it killed Jesus. It killed him. And yet he looked at us in the reality. It's the, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. Who's the joy? You, me. The foundation of the gospel being by faith alone is the motivation for a life of faithfulness if we miss that church we forget what matters most you daily remind daily renew that's why so many times when I come and I talk with friends or I meet people for the first time I ask them a question and if you're here I've I've likely asked you this question at one time hey on a scale one to 10 with 10 being certain God forbid but if you were to die today how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And you give an answer, somewhere one to 10. First time someone asked me that question, I answered seven, right? And then you ask a follow-up. Hey, if, if God were to come and you were to stand before him right before heaven and he would say, why should I let you in? He'll never ask you that question. But if he were to say, why should I let you in? How would you answer him? The reason you always ask those questions is they're called diagnostic questions. They help you really see something. Because here's what's true. Any time you or I come and our answer, it's less than a 10, even if it's 9.9999999, less than a 10, to a degree, we don't just believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, but we believe in ourselves. There's something we have to do. There's something we have to earn. There's something we have to demonstrate. Like Christ brings most of it to the table, but then we gotta bring some of it to make sure it all lines up. Beware that lie. It's an evil lie. It's a broken lie. That lie not only can can mislead you in salvation, that lie, if you cling to that, will break, will cripple sanctification, a growth in a relationship with God. That's why, guys, don't believe in yourself. You are broken. You are imperfect. You are nowhere near good enough. Your best day is not good enough. Yet the reason we call it the gospel, the reason it is the good news, is because on my worst day, man, my brokenness, your brokenness, the part of your marriage that you just think, man, it's barely holding on by a thread, the part of the reality where you come and you can't stop giving way to alcoholism, pornography, or just being a stubborn, prideful jerk, an indifferent, apathetic spouse. Whatever your thing is, don't believe in you. Believe in Christ who paid the penalty for everything broken you've ever done and who wants to set you free. That is, we'll see, that is what is called circumcision of the heart. Changed heart, a new life, new faith. So in order to not believe in yourself, what do you do? Beware the lie. Let's look at verse three as we then see Paul say. When you beware the lie, what must you do? Believe the truth. If you got a Bible, jump back with me. We're gonna look at Verse three. Guys, this is why we love our Bible here. This is why when you connect with God through this, it transforms, it changes. He's given it as a gift so you can get to know him and get to know everything he intends. He is good and kind. Verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and, and this is our summary theme, put no confidence in the flesh. As I shared before, he says, for we are the circumcision. One of the things, if if you study the Old Testament or or you know this, you'll kind of know where this will go. There's this beautiful passage in Deuteronomy, verse 30, or excuse me, chapter 30, verse 6, where it's speaking to, right, Moses is teaching this. It's this reminder of the law of God. And he says, hey, here's the intention of circumcision. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul's reminding us, hey, circumcision, it was a sign that was intended to point towards a hopeful, a prayerful future reality. It's the sign that points towards the moment when God comes in your life and in mine, where he has bid you come, and he pleads with you, come. He reminds you you're a broken sinner in need of a savior, and he bids you, but come home, I'll take you. It's that moment in the story of the prodigal son when he comes to his senses. Circumcision in the heart is the moment of faith. When he changes you and he changes me, and we realize, man, I gotta love the Lord my God. He's true, it's all true, I don't work for it. He's given it, I'm in need, and this truth changes everything. What happens to people who've come to believe that truth? There's three things. Those are people who worship in the spirit of God. What what I love about that is what happens when you come to believe in Christ is the Holy Spirit indwells you. Like God resides within you. Where before, and this is like, if you've ever tried to earn your way to God, here's what you end up feeling like. If you haven't tried it, keep trying, right? I'm gonna tell you, it's not gonna work, but hopefully you'll come to the end of yourself and then realize this. You'll realize you are not enough. You'll realize that you are a perpetual letdown yourself as well as to God, except God doesn't want you to stay down. What happens is when you believe in him, he doesn't make you work your way up. He comes down and he meets you right where you are, and he changes that. So what happens, we try to work our way. There's no real heart of worship. There's no real heart of praise. There's no real heart of adoration. But when people come and they realize, I was once the dog. I was once the evildoer. My mind may have looked different, but I was once who tried to mutilate the flesh where I came and I told people, oh man, like I just gotta go to church more. I just have to give more money. If I could just be a better parent, if I could just put my kids in church so they could have a moral background. I want them to grow up with morals. If I could just pray at dinners and we create these, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, then we'd be good enough. The people who fight for that, their hearts aren't full of worship of people who know that's not true, that he loves you. Those people sing praises. Second thing, what do they do? They glory in Christ. I love this word glory. It literally means to boast in what matters most, right? It's to boast in what you care about the most. Why I love this is through this whole section. These Judaizers are saying, come boast in not just faith, but what you do. And then Paul, to counteract them, he says, wait, 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 I've done even more than what they did. Right? And there's this almost broken arrogance that Paul's using in an argument against them. But here's what Paul's saying. The only thing you can boast in, the only thing that you and I can glory in is not any bit of our work, any bit of our effort. The only thing we can glory in, the only thing we can ascribe praise to is not our work, but his work on our behalf. It's not what we do, it is what Jesus Christ did. And I'm gonna tell you again, here's what he did. You and I, we were broken sinners. That sin, God is holy. He cannot be connected to us in our sin. It creates a separation from him. He does not want to be separated from you. But instead of making you and me fight to be this better version of ourselves, knowing we'll ultimately never really make it, instead of us slave our way back to him, he sent a son, a perfect, spotless lamb of a son to live a life, to die for you and to die for me, the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you. His son rose from the grave, defeating death, and then pleads with you and me, believe. He's coming again, and he says, believe. That belief changes everything. That belief changes everything. So who gets the glory? Is it our efforts, our attempts, our abilities to be a better version? Nope, nope, none of that. I don't care how many disciplined habits you have. God gets the glory. Because here's what's true. When you understand that God gets the glory and you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the foundation, the primary motive you have towards holiness is this gospel. Then when you come and you do take righteous actions, when you do come and you do fight to get to know him, when you do come and you do try to disciple your kids, and when you do come and you do fight for a healthy, beautiful, God-glorifying marriage, when you do come and you do those things, it's honoring. Why? You're not doing it for you. You've done it because of him. They glory in Christ. And the final one, this is the summary theme we've shared before, they put no confidence in the flesh. Why? Their confidence is in Christ. The flesh is any part of you that says, I don't need God, I can go my own way. You don't put confidence in the flesh. You put confidence in Christ. We don't believe in ourselves. We believe in him. We don't trust in ourselves. We trust in him. Putting confidence in yourself, it's your self-assurance. It's your self-dependence. It's your self-belief. Don't be assured on yourself. Be assured in God. Don't depend on yourself. Depend in God. Don't rely on you. Rely on God. He loves you. He wants to help you. What do we know? Man, so many of us, we have misconceptions that we hold to be truths. One of those, believe in yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm pleading with you. Paul's pleading with you to put no confidence in the flesh. Your efforts, we're gonna see next week where he's gonna go. I wish we could do it all. Your effort, you're gonna see where he's gonna go. They're meaningless. They're worthless. Put put nothing in them for a relationship with God. What happens when we do that? We beware beware the lie. The thought that there is some form of, well, I know God loves me, so I say that, but I need to do these things. That's foolishness. If you believe that, you've believed an anti-unbiblical gospel. There's no ifs, ends, or buts. There is one gospel. Everything else is anti-gospel. But where the lie? And what do we do? We believe the truth. I'm gonna close with this. I, I can remember there was a time... Uh, I got to see this visual because for the longest time I thought about it this way and I'm going to pull up this uh, stick. Let me, let me ask y'all, who's the worst person you can think of? Who comes to mind? Right? If you ask that, okay, I heard Hitler. You ask the average American who the worst person they can think of is, they generally tend to say Hitler. What if we ask the average American, who's the best person they can think of? Who do you think they'd say? Nope, not saying that one. Who do you think they'd say? Okay, Mother Teresa, right? Average American, man, I'm just telling you, for some reason you do that. Well, here's what we've done. I've invited them both to join us. Look at this slide, right? Here's what we tend to do. Here's what we tend to do. Most Americans, right, most Americans, we come and we have this broken mindset, and this is my demonstration for the line of righteousness. It's a red broom handle, right? We tend to think, who's the worst? Hitler. I cannot be like Hitler. And by the grace of God, most of us aren't, right? So we come, but then we think, well, man, I can't be the guy who's totally prideful and says he's like Mother Teresa. She like loved widows and orphans. She gave her life away. She had like no money. Like she's a really good person. I'm pretty sure the Catholic church made her a saint. She's been canonized, right? I I can't be like her. So we come and, and most people, we default to somewhere in this middle part. And then we begin to create our own form of working our way to God, where where we, like let's say you grew up in the Bible, where we think, okay, well, hey, if if I go to church, right, I'm a little bit better of a person. I'm a little more righteous. Hey, hey, if I stop cussing, I'm a little more righteous. Hey, if I watch my temper with my kids, hey, hey, okay, I'm getting a little closer to God, right? I bet Mother Teresa, She's got to be in heaven. So if I can keep inching my way that way. So we make these different steps, these different bargains. Hey, what if I went to a Bible study? I could go to a Bible study. What if I start going to church consistently? What if I give more money? Okay, that would be a good thing. Hey, what if I start trying to pray at dinner with my family? What if, like at Christmas time when we come, when everyone else is reading a night before Christmas or a night before whatever that book's called, right? Right? We'll come and we'll read about Jesus's birth. And we're always trying to figure out this question. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? How good do you have to be to go to heaven? Like what work in your life, what effort is God asking you to do to break your addiction? right, to be a different parent, to care about your spouse, to go and get a job and stop being lazy, to take responsibility for your sin? What work does God want from you to where once you finally get there, you might just be good enough? Guys, biblically, this is foolish, absolutely foolish. In reality, I cannot throw that far enough. In reality, the fact that Mother Teresa is where we somehow self-assess is if I could just be that good, maybe I could have a relationship with God in heaven. The standard of righteousness is so far that way, infinite in the holiness of God. Our broken standards are lies. There's nothing you can do nothing. And if you believe this to be true, there's nothing he can't redeem, nothing he can't restore, nothing he can't bring peace, joy, and love to. Why? That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. Don't you dare believe in yourself. Believe in a God who died for you who sent his son Jesus, who's coming back again, who by faith his spirit indwells you and compels you to worship, to glory, to walk by faith. That is what marks followers of Christ. Let me pray that it would mark us. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, just what it means for me and what it means in the lives of people here. I'd ask that you would come and do what only you can and change hearts People who who don't know you, would you lead them to you? Would your spirit come and change the heart in a way that only you can? But God, folks who do know you, yet we still, we default to this mindset of God will love me more if, God will love me more if, God will love me more if. And while we would say this isn't true, our heart betrays us. Would you change them? May we never be legalistic Pharisees. May we be people who depend on your grace. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you want to help people like me grow to love you more. You are so kind. You are so good. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, if you have questions about any of this, or if you want to come and talk about what does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, where you're not constantly insecure, and if you're good enough, please turn to someone beside you and ask them, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And ask them questions. If there's any hint of confusion, I'll be right here. We'd love to talk with y'all about it. But thank y'all for joining us this morning. Y'all go. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next Sunday.